All right. Rolling, rolling, rolling. So, um, talk about something other than uh, coronavirus and, and politics for a, a little bit. Uh, I, I'll have to do this story first because it's, I don't have any notes to read or any articles to read about it. Um, as you know, I'm a, a wrestling fan, fan of WWF, WWE, um, All Elite Wrestling. Um, and so, probably the best looking female wrestler going right now is this Mandy Rose. Um, she's got, you know, blonde hair, big breast assist, um, nice legs. She's into fitness and exercise. She was a professional bikini competitor, which is a division in women's bodybuilding now. And it was kind of cool that to see she's starting to get built up as a wrestler on TV now. She, um, they had her on a pretty good losing streak, which when you're new to wrestling, kind of happened you gotta work your way up and stuff so she was um teamed with this other lady wrestler uh in a tag team or friendship uh they called themselves fire and desire um the other girl's name was Sonya Deville and so after being unsuccessful, they started um, a storyline where this guy, that guy named Otis, who's part of a tag team called Heavy Machinery, Otis, you know, was in love with Mandy Deville, had a crush on her, or Mandy Rose, <laughs> combined their names, um, and so a uh, few weeks in a row and things, he got. Uh, involved in Mandy's matches and saved her and stuff like that. And, you know, Otis's thing is he's this a big, big guy, but he's very athletic. He's a, basically a big, fat guy. In fact, they changed his uh, wrestling ring attire from um, a wrestling singlet, like an actual wrestler would wear. They kind of hid his gut as best you could hide it uh, to wearing, you know, regular wrestling trunks like a professional wrestler usually wears. And that was to, you know, show off his massive stomach even more. And so Mandy Rose went to Vince McMahon, the head of the World Wrestling Federation, and 
pitched a storyline where her and Otis would become a couple. It was kind of, you know, in society, we have stereotypes and, you know, the guys that look like Otis and speak gibberish are not supposed to get the blonde model. And uh, I guess Mandy and Otis have had a friendship for a while. Well, she has a different boyfriend in real life. But uh, when they were in the WWE's developmental territory, NXT, when they would have promo classes, which is promos are like the interviews that the wrestlers do. Um, sometimes they just, they don't get interviewed. They just go out and talk. That's called a promo. And so in promo class, Otis would always, or not always, but sometimes he would talk about Mandy Rose and he would always call her my peach or my candy or something. And so they were good friends. And Mandy pitched this storyline to Vince McMahon to make them a couple. Well, you know, it took its twists and it tur its turns. And Mandy's tag team partner and another wrestler, Dolph Ziggler, were going to ruin Otis and Mandy's first date on Valentine's Day by sending Otis fake tweets or uh, text messages from Mandy saying she was, you know, running late and all this stuff. And so finally, you know, Otis gets to the date and Dolph Ziggler's already sitting at the table with Mandy because Otis showed up late and Mandy thought he wasn't going to show up at all. And then Dolph, you know, snuck his way in there. And anyway, so long story short, you know, the truth comes out and Otis gets the girl and I think it's really cool of this Mandy Rose that she pitched that idea to Vince McMahon to uh, do this gimmick where the guy that isn't supposed to get the hot chick gets the hot chick. And she's like, you know, I, I linked an interview she did where she explains all this much better than I do. I linked it in the description, so you can check that out and hear for yourself. But she said something pretty cool, and that was plain and simple. One thing she called Otis cute, which is really sweet. Um, and he's not a bad looking guy. He's just a big old, big boy, you know, and has a, you know, a gut, but, you know, he's short too. That doesn't help. But, you know, she said, you know, it's what's on the inside that matters. And I thought that was really cool. You know, she was out of character. It was just her being her in an interview. I also linked her, uh, personal 
Twitter page in the uh, or her personal YouTube page in the description. And it used to be her and Sonia Deville, Deville's YouTube page, but now it's just Mandy Rose's. So, that's pretty cool. I just thought about talking right, about wrestling for a change. The big thing on television right now is uh, The Last Dance, about the 1998 Chicago... Bulls, but they go through the whole history of the Bulls, doubles, 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 and um, you know, it flashes back, it flashes from 98 back in time to other big moments in the Bulls. 1990s run of dominance in the NBA. And even the year that Jordan didn't play basketball, uh, he was off practicing baseball, they were still, you know, a good team. You know, Scottie Pippen led the way. Um, they lost to the New York Knicks in seven games in uh, might have been the Eastern Conference semifinals. Uh, but anyways, and then the next year Jordan came back halfway through the season, but he wasn't all the way back. I mean, he had some big games. He was wearing the number 45 jersey. And uh, they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals uh, to the Orlando Magic, which at the time, the Magic were going to be the next big team in the NBA. But then, of course, the Bulls went out and got uh, Dennis Rodman. Uh, they got better. Jordan practiced harder. So he was uh, ready for the 96 Nine, was it 96? I guess it would have been 95, 96 season. And so, um, then that's when they had their 72 and 10 season. But let's look at something here from the show The Last Dance. This is an article I just saw. Uh, it's LA Times. It says, The Last Dance, 23... Most fascinating takeaways from episodes five and six. So let's see if he did, if he picked up on anything that I didn't pick up on. Episode five. Excuse me. Episode five opens with "In loving memory of Kobe Bryant." which Jordan pays homage to the Lakers star. I will leave it at that. Watch it. All right. That's no big surprise. Uh, number two, Jordan's final All-Star game with the Chicago Bulls occurs in 97-98. The event, which was played in New York, entertainingly features Jordan and some fellow All-Stars 
who were off camera taking some, talking some smack to young rambunctious Bryant. That was pretty cool, yeah. Um, you know, they were kind of putting Kobe in his place or just razzing him because he was like 19 and in the NBA All-Star game. You know, Jordan said, Jordan said, after the first four attempts, if I was his teammate, I wouldn't pass him the effing ball. Uh, though long retired as, a, as players, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird still hover over Michael, the MJ storyline. It's hilarious to watch Bird, the coach of the Eastern Conference team. That is funny. Larry Bird was Michael's rival. Then he was his coach in the All-Star game. Uh, he pointed to Magic in the hallway before the game and said, Talk some smack. Hey, Michael, wouldn't you like to have some of his ass today? And George, or Bird says, and... Then Michael replies, hey, you know, I'd be coming at that at his ass. I don't get that, but whatever. Just like I used to come at both y'all, Johnson says. During the game, Brian asked Jordan for his advice, which was pretty cool. Um, which, is, which Jordan was more than willing to share. Bryant said Jordan's like a big brother. Yeah, this documentary's been in the making for a while. And uh, so they did, inter did do some interviews with Kobe before he passed away. And that, that was really, really cool. It was good to see him in this. And, um, you know, at his funeral, Michael spoke highly. Well, not really his funeral, but memorial service. I never knew they were such good friends because... As Kobe was getting into basketball, you know, Jordan was retiring. And after Jordan retired, uh, after the 98 season, I just never really cared for it anymore. It just wasn't the same to me. Um, so on March 8th, 1998, final visit to uh, Madison Square Garden. Jordan wore a pair of the red and white Air Jordan 1s, the first shoe he wore in the garden. So that he wore an old school pair of the first ever Air Jordans. And they were so uncomfortable, uh, they made his feet bleed. Which <laughs> shows you how far they've come in basketball shoe technology. And later pairs of Air Jordans would actually be custom custom made to Jordan's feet so you know changing some things for size obviously if you bought a pair of Air Jordans you were buying a shoe that was custom made to fit Michael Jordan's foot and the way he moved and the way he played and they say that uh, he has really like messed up feet like 
because he would run so hard and then just come to a sudden stop and change direction and that all you know did damage on his feet but this game in particular the air jordan ones uh made his feet bleed and he said when he took his he he was playing so well he didn't want to change the shoes but after the game when he took them off he said his feet were covered or his socks were soaked in blood um Jordan acknowledged the shoe company he wanted to sign with was Adidas, which I already knew that. Um, Adidas was like the cool sneaker. Um, Converse had all of the big NBA names at the time uh, wearing their shoes and advertising their shoes. Nike did a pitch that... Um, his mom and dad made him go to the Nike uh, executives meeting. And uh, his dad told him, you got to be a fool not taking this deal. This is the best deal. And I remember hearing this because I've read so much about Jordan, but he really wanted to sign with Adidas. But Adidas uh, had some star athletes already. Did, said they didn't have room for him. And Nike wanted to become a major player in basketball shoes. So they said they were going to build a whole marketing campaign and shoe around Jordan. Uh, so that's really interesting. Oh, here's the thing. Um, oops. Jordan's aged agent David Falk who came up with the name Air Jordan so this wasn't well Michael was already being called Air Jordan and alright wait let me get the story straight uh, in the show Nike had just come up with the the air pocket sole for their running shoes and they were trying to incorporate it into basketball and um, David Falk came up with the name for the shoe the Air Jordan and Nike had hoped to sell three million dollars worth by year four of the deal in one year we sold 126 million dollars worth said Falk. So <laughs> it was pretty low expectations, but the world was changing. And this Air Jordan changed uh, shoes from like a functional basketball shoe into a fashion statement. Kids that didn't even play basketball had to have the latest Air Jordan. And every year, you know, the, the design and the style and so on changed. And it was a big thing to run to Foot Locker and get the newest Air Jordan. Uh, let's see here, number eight. For those of us who remember, it's strange to explain Mars Blackman. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into that. Uh, last weekend, Isaiah Thomas was, uh, this is number nine. Isaiah Thomas was a, the notorious foil for Jordan. 
This weekend, it's Clyde Drexler, whose comparisons to Jordan during the 92 finals excited Jordan's air, ire, excuse me, excited Jordan's ire. Clyde was a threat, Jordan said. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't a threat. But me, me being compared to him, I took offense to that. So, yeah, that was a, a big thing. I remember on the cover of Sports Illustrated, there was a, a picture of Michael Jordan with Clyde Drexler defending him, I think. And it said Collision Course. I think I still have the Sports Illustrated. And, you know, Drexler had been in the NBA about the same amount of time as Jordan. Um, they weren't that far apart in age and experience and whatever. Um, Drexler was with the University of Houston team that got upset by Jim Valvano's famous team. Um... Houston was known as Phi Kappa Slamma because they just ran up and down the court and dunked on everybody. Uh, game one against Drexler's Trailblazers, Jordan dropped six threes on Portland in the first half, which prompted Jordan's now famous shoulder shrug. I remember that. It's... uh. Magic Johnson actually said it, not Michael. But Michael shrugged his shoulders and Magic's like, he can't guard me. And then that quote kind of got attributed to Jordan. On the last Jordan thought about Drexler comparisons, based on the way I was playing at the time, it wasn't even close. And, and that's pretty well true. I mean, Drexler was a good ball player, great defender, um... Great at taking the ball to the rim. He was known as Clyde the Glide for his uh, athletic dunking ability, but he was no, no Jordan. The Bulls championships in 91 and 92 didn't prevent Jordan from taking another shot at general manager Jerry Krause during the 92 celebration. With a victory cigar in his mouth, Jordan told Krause... You can't smoke it with it will stunt your growth. Yeah, Jerry Krause was like really short and really fat. And I never realized it back in the day how short he really was. And his face is kind of lopsided. Uh hope it's not like a, a medical thing. But anyways. Uh number 13, you know, Rod Thorne. USA Basketball Chairman asked Jordan to play on the first Dream Team in 1992. This was the first time uh, NBA professionals were allowed to play in the Olympics, and it was a huge ordeal. Uh, and it was like the greatest team ever assembled. I mean, they would beat any uh, Olympic team. Uh, even that, you know, the USA regularly uses professional basketball players now. But that first dream team would beat any of them. Murder them, probably. Uh, Jordan asked Thorne who would join him. 
he says, well, the guy you're talking about or you're thinking about is not going to be playing, Jordan recalls. The player was Isaiah Thomas. Um, it's been rumored that Jordan blackballed Isaiah Thomas from the Dream Team, but truthfully, a lot of people on the Dream Team didn't want to play with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, the Dream Team, based on the environment and camaraderie that happened on that team, it was the best harmony, Jordan said. Would Isaiah have made, it, made a different feeling on that team? Yes. Yes, he would have. Um, I agree with that. The Dream Team, they still would have blown everybody out, but it, some of the players may not have played with Isaiah, like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, even though they were in the twilight of their careers. I mean, that's still huge to have... Um, Um, to have Larry Bird, Ma Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan on one team, along with Scottie Pippen, uh, Carl Malone, David Robinson, um, just a, a who's who of basketball. Um, these, these episodes... Number 15, these episodes begin to show Jordan's shortcomings that defined his story in the mid-90s, among them lack of political engagement. I wasn't a politician when I was playing my sport, Jordan said. I was focused on my craft. Was that selfish? Probably. But that was my energy. That's where my energy was. A lot of people wanted Jordan to get involved in politics and give his opinions um, and, you know, I don't really care. Um, on the show, hold on. On the show specifically, talks about there's a, a black man running against um, Jesse Helms. And Jesse Helms was like a politician in North Carolina forever. I mean, up into the 2000s, um, you know, from the 80s up, maybe 70s even, up until the, you know, mid-2000s, like 2010s. And uh, Jesse was an old-school kind of segregationist. Um, that's the way they paint him in the documentary. Um, he, I know he was known as a grumpy old man, but this African-American man ran against Jesse Holmes in like 92 or 94, and people wanted Jordan to come out and endorse him um, and thought that that would swing the election towards this black man that was running for Senate. Would have been the first black senator. I don't know if it was the first black senator period or the first black senator from North Carolina. But they wanted Jordan to give political opinions and that just wasn't his thing. And he said one time jokingly on a bus that, uh, you know, Republicans buy tennis shoes too. And that, you know, upset some people and they talk about it in episode 
five, I think it is. Um, Jordan talks, you know, about his life in... This article says the 93-94 season, but I think it means 92-93. Because 91, they won the championship. 92, they won. 93, they won. And then after that, he went and played baseball. But whatever. Um, could have been the 93-94 season. But no. Anyways, trying to manage his legacy was taking a toll on him. Everyone expected him to be squeaky clean. Uh, this is point number six. Sixteen, I mean, in the article. Trying to manage his legacy began to take a visible toll on Jordan during the 93-94 season. I'm ready to get out of this life, Jordan said. You know, when you, 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 get, all, you, when you get to that point, I'm there without reservations at all at all i'm there so you know it showed him you know before every basketball game he would visit with a make-a-wish kid and he'd spend 10 or 15 minutes with them and really make them feel like they got to know michael jordan and that was really cool but then after the games he was mobbed by reporters and then he'd go out into the hallway and there'd be a mob of autograph seekers. And then he would go outside the arena. And there would be another mob of autograph seekers. And he tried to sign as much and take as many pictures with kids as he could. You know, but he'd go back to the hotel if they were on the road. And then there would be another mob waiting for him there. So it was just like so hard being Michael Jordan. Um, so number 17 says Jordan holds Bulls forward Horace Grant as the primary culprit for opening the curtain on the team's inner workings in Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, which detailed how difficult Jordan could be at times. And yeah, he admits to it, and his teammates admit to it. He was constantly pushing them, yelling at them, cussing them to be better players because his goal in life was to win and win at everything and be the best winner possible. And that's what, you know, drove him. So he wanted everyone around him to be the same. And, you know, yeah, he... Got into fights with uh, teammates. Whenever they would, you know, play one-on-one -on -one practice, he would put Scotty Pippen on the opposite team and push Scotty. And Scotty said that's how he became the player he became was Michael constantly pushing on him in practice. Um, I don't think he needed to punch Will Purdue, but Michael, that is. Uh, season 6 begins to remove the varnish from Jordan's image in earnest, notably with its dive into 
yeah, dive into Jordan's gambling habits, including a trip to Atlantic City with his father during the Eastern Conference Finals. So the Bulls came out and they lost game one to the New York Knicks. And the Knicks were the new bad boy Pistons, except instead of the Bulls trying to knock them off, the Knicks were trying to knock the Bulls off and trying to knock Michael's head off specifically. And so after game one, Michael and his dad and some friends went to Atlantic City and people in Atlantic City said they saw Jordan on the gambling floor at 2.30 in the morning. And is this why Jordan was sluggish uh, in the next game? Well, then, <laughs> in typical Jordan fashion, him and his teammates got pissed off and they won the next four games. So, thanks, uh, tabloid reporters, for pissing Jordan off. That's... Uh, where they ended the Knicks. Um, it this article says nine, number nineteen. We're interested to, or we're introduced to, golf hustler James Slim Bowyer, who produced a signed check from Jordan for fifty-seven thousand dollars, which to Jordan that's like five, or for Michael Jordan that'd be like fifty-seven dollars to me or you. Uh, the, a seminal amount in the debate about Jordan's gambling habits. Um, at first, Michael Jordan said, well, it was a loan. And then when he had to testify against this guy in court, Jordan said, no, that was a check to pay off my gambling debt to him. Um, the Jordan rules is rightly remembered as number 20. The Jordan rules are is rightly remembered as the definitive book on the Jordan 90s, but we also are introduced to Richard Esquanus, Aquinas, um, book Michael and Me, Our Gambling Addiction, My Cry for Help. Uh, this Aquinas guy claimed that Jordan owed him $1.2 million on golf bets, uh, that's a substantial amount of money, but for what Michael was making, that wasn't that bad for him. Um, the NBA invest number twenty-one. The NBA NBA investigated Jordan's gambling associates directly addressed the question with the player when asked by newscaster Connie Chung if he had a gambling problem. Jordan answered no. Because I can stop gambling. I have a competition problem. A competitive problem. So Jordan might have gambled. But his biggest problem is he always wanted to win. And gambling was just part of winning. If you want to win a card game. Like blackjack or poker. There's going to be money on the table. If you you know, go out there golfing. You know, I guess gambling on you know, who wins or how many strokes or whatever the hell they do in golf, I don't know. That would be a um, another way of making it competitive. By the time the number 22, by the time the Bulls defeated the Phoenix Suns in their third consecutive NBA championship, Jordan was visibly wary. And, you know, at the time, I didn't notice it, but... 
when you look at it through the lens of hindsight, you, you do notice it in this documentary series. Um, so let's read the quote. If I had the chance to do it all over again, I would never want to be considered a role model, he said. It's like a game that's stacked against me. There's no way I can win. And that's true. You know, when somebody calls you a role model, and he kind of was, he was to me and to a lot of young people, but, you know, it stacks the deck against you because you have to be what's considered morally perfect at the time. So, it, you know, it, it is very difficult, you know. And then number 23, my weekly pitch for a soundtrack to be released soon, and it must include the track from rapper Nas with Lauren Hill, If I Ruled the World. I don't know what the hell that has to do with anything. I guess that's Michael Jordan. I don't know. I don't get number 23. But okay. Well, that ended on a shitty note. Um, I'm going to link another article in the description on YouTube, the Panic Attack channel, um, where it talks about uh, was Jordan's gambling a problem? The Last Dance delves into inf into infamous side of, of MJ. So, you guys can check that article out for yourselves. Um, you know, it's been a great documentary, and a lot of people are talking about it, posting on social media about it, and... It's just a, it's a really good documentary for those of us that grew up in that time to go back and remember. Cause, because the NBA was the biggest sport in America. Um, you know, the, the, the quote national pastime in America is baseball. But, I mean, in the 90s, especially when the Bulls were, well... Bulls were on that run for the entire 90s. But, you know, basketball was America's passion, followed by football. And then after Jordan retired, football kind of replaced basketball as America's passion, and it still is today. Um, but, you know, Jordan and these guys made basketball larger than life. Uh, if you went anywhere in the world, people recognized Michael Jordan. Uh, there was a, a study done, I think uh, they said in the world, but I'm sure it was only in certain countries, that somewhere they gave kids like a picture chart and it had like, you know, famous world leaders or famous American leaders and more kids knew who Michael Jordan was than knew who Bill Clinton was. So, you know, that just goes to show. And, you know, like a friend of mine, his brother was um, studying abroad in Australia. 
And the brother was, this is when the Cavs first got LeBron James. And they were hot, you know. They weren't, you know, in the NBA Finals yet. But they were, like, on that cusp of making the Finals. That was always, like, for LeBron's first, however many years he spent in Cleveland the first time. It was always, like, we're just one piece of the puzzle away from being a championship contender with LeBron. Um, but anyways, this friend of mine, his brother was in Australia and nobody knew who LeBron James was. They still knew who Michael Jordan was. And he, he would have, the brother would have to explain, uh, LeBron James, he's a professional basketball player. And they would say, oh, you mean like Michael Jordan? And he would say, yeah, like Michael Jordan, but he's LeBron James. And they're like, who's LeBron James? Okay, so that's how Michael Jordan transcended basketball and was a uh, international star, you know, uh, larger-than-life figure. <coughs> Frankly, he looked like a, you know, like he could be a model. And, you know, he did. I mean, he was in so many commercials, you might as well say he was a model. You know, Coke, Pepsi, or not Pepsi, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, um, Nike, uh, other, you know, sporting goods. I think he endorsed too. Maybe not. Maybe it was just Nike. But, um... Well, yeah, he did. He endorsed Wilson Sporting Goods. Like, Wilson made, like, basketballs and footballs for, you know, kids and people at home, I think. Well, no, it was Spalding was the official basketball of the NBA. But Wilson, I had many Wilson basketballs that had, like, some kind of picture of Michael Jordan or had his, like, fake signature engraved into the ball. My mom made that guy rich. I mean, anything you could think to endorse, Michael endorsed it. He made Gatorade famous. You know, the commercial, Sometimes I Dream, He Is Me, If I Could Be Like Mike, Drink Gatorade. Um... And, of course, he made Nike, and now he has his own division of Nike, uh, the Jordan Jordan Company. So, anyways, that was a pretty interesting look at Michael Jordan um, and the Chicago Bulls in this documentary, The Last Dance. So, with that, good night. God bless you. Pray for one another, and I'll see you the next time.